We're going to miss you guys. We're going to miss you a lot. Uh, Sometimes uh, this life just doesn't seem fair. But uh, God has the right to deploy the troops. We we talk a lot about uh, developing a boot camp mentality around here. We want to have uh, a world view. We want people to go from this place and serve God around the world. And um, it's God's business to put you where he sees fit. But we're sure going to miss you. Uh, you're not only leaders here, you're good friends. And that's hard. it's always hard to say goodbye to good friends. Uh, Brent, I'm particularly going to miss that swamp that you call a lake over there. Brent has this fishing hole where uh, you're always in danger of having your float tube overturned by emerging bubbles of swamp gas. <laughs> it's the most unusual lake I've ever seen. And uh, I'm going to miss those uh, days over there with you. Uh, well, let's uh, turn to John 13. I have uh, a wonderful story to share with you this morning. We're going to take a break from our study in in uh, Judges for just one Sunday. We'll go back to the story of Deborah and Barak next, uh, next week. But this morning I'd like to call your attention to an event that took place at the end of of our Lord's life. Let me uh, begin reading with verse 1. John 13:1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come that he should depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now John, in his introduction to this story, tells us that our Lord's death was imminent. His hour had come, and the hour to which he refers is the hour of his death. He also tells us that our Lord's authority was absolute. He had all power given to him by the Father. Now you would think at this point he would rise from supper and he would perform some sign or wonder or would at least begin some great discourse. Uh, The sermon in the upper room, for example. But what our Lord did is remarkable. He disrobed himself, he took off the long robe that was worn on the outside in those days. He took off the short tunic that they wore underneath the robe. And dressed as a slave, he began to crawl around on that hard stone floor, crawl around on his hands and knees, and wash the feet of his disciples. Now John, in this story, answers a question that uh, comes 
to us from time to time. If God were to appear on uh, were to appear on earth, what would he be like? Would he uh, descend from uh, Krypton like Superman and flex his muscles and throw his weight around? Would he condescend from Olympus like the old gods and walk the streets of Athens all shimmery and shiny and nonchalant and aloof? Is that what he would be like? No. He would bow and scrape and fetch for his creation. He became a slave. That's the point of this story. That's the remarkable lesson, one of the remarkable lessons to be learned. Now you have to understand the background. In those days uh, when you were invited to some special occasion, you would uh, go by a public bath and you would bathe yourself all over. The Romans had built uh, large uh, bathhouses uh, throughout uh, the land of Palestine. But as you made your way to the place where uh, the meal was to be served or the party took place because we were in sandals, open sandals, and because the streets were dusty, your feet would get dirty. So a slave would be stationed at the entrance to the house, and uh, that slave would take off your sandals, and he would wash your feet, and then you would proceed barefooted into the room. That was the custom in that day. There were no slaves in the apostolic band. Not one of the disciples wanted to perform this service for the others, and so our Lord took the task on himself. He got down on his hands and feet, and he washed the filthy, grimy feet of his disciples. What, what unthinkable humiliation. Now, I suppose our Lord uh, began to his left. Judas was seated uh, immediately to his left, and he washed Judas's feet first and then proceeded on around the circle to Matthew, Bartholomew, Philip, and, and he came to Peter. John gives us uh, Peter's response in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? The emphasis in this question is clearly on the, on the pronouns. You, my Lord, my Messiah, the King of Israel, you are going to wash my feet? Peter was embarrassed. I think he was thinking, as I would think in those, under those circumstances, if I were you, I wouldn't do this. Our Lord answered and said to him, What I do to you, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, You will never by any means whatever wash my feet. I've mentioned before that in English we don't use double negatives. We don't never say... Don't never. But that's perfectly good Greek. Good Greek grammar. What Peter says is you will not never. You will never by any means whatever wash my feet. No way, he says. And he probably pulled his feet up under his, his robe. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. No communion. No fellowship. Can't uh, walk with Jesus if your feet are dirty. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, if that's the case, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Give me a bath all over. 
Jesus said to him, He who has been bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And aside to Judas here, who had not yet taken a bath in this sense. And then John, in historic, from a historical per- perspective, comments on his remark, Not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying you. For this reason, he said, Not all of you are, are clean. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? Now I ask you, what, what, what is there to understand about what Jesus did? Their feet were dirty and he washed them. Plain, straightforward fact. Historical event. What's to understand? Is uh, he intending us to understand that cleanliness is next to godliness? Is this the point? No, there has to be something more. There are a number of things that we can learn from this story. One is that this is, in some sense, a parable of the mission which he undertook. As Paul puts it, he who is in the form of God, that is, he was essentially God, did not think that likeness to God was something to be forcibly retained, but he humbled himself and became a man and was made in the form. He became intrinsically a servant. That was his nature. And he humiliated himself to the point of death. Uh, Paul makes that statement in Philippians 2 when he talks about the mind that ought to characterize us, the attitude that ought to characterize us toward one another. So just keep in mind that our Lord disrobed himself, as it were, stripped off his regal robes, his royal robes, and he became one of us, and he was so much a man that he served us even to the extent of, of death. That's all in Philippians 2. And then having served in that way, he then returned to his place at the head of the table, at the Father's right hand, and he put on his robes again, and he seated himself with the authority that was inherently his. So it's a wonderful picture of the whole mission that our Lord undertook in the Incarnation. It's also a wonderful example of of humility and uh, what we mean by leadership in the church. Leadership is not lordship. Leadership is not upward mobility. Leadership is always being led down, 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 even to death and humiliation. It's downward mobility. Even our Lord did not operate on the basis of lordship. He did not pull rank on people. He served them. But there's even something more here, and this is really the point that our Lord wants us to understand has to do with our salvation, the nature of it, the necessity of it. He says to his disciples, at least 11 of them, you're clean. You've been bathed all over. What does he mean? Well, he's talking about the same thing that Peter refers to when he says, we have been washed with the water of the word. We have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We've been cleansed. We've been purified. It's what Paul describes as justification by faith. We've been been declared righteous. We are, in the words of this text, completely clean. If you've come to Christ by faith and you've accepted the sacrifice that he offered for you, you're clean. You don't have to take another bath. You don't have to keep coming down to the front and being regenerated again and again and again. You are clean. And as Peter learned in another uh, instance, what God has called clean, don't call unclean. They're clean. 
You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You've been purified. His death has cleansed you completely, totally. So when our Lord says uh, to the disciples, you're clean, he says it to us as well. You're clean. You're clean. But walking through this world tends to defile us. We get our feet dirty. We pick up the attitudes and the actions of this world, and, and we all begin to feel that defilement, and it affects our sense of intimacy with the Lord, our proximity to him. He's still there, but we sense that we've withdrawn, and, and we find our walk with the Lord difficult, and our vision of him is, is obscured, and we need to keep washing our feet. As John puts it, if we confess our sins, that is, call our sins what God calls them, identify them, recognize them, not dismiss them, overlook them, justify them, defend them. If we face them and judge them, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. That's that wonderful ministry of foot washing which our Lord carries out throughout our life and which he had carried out for the apostles. You can think of a number of instances. There was one occasion where Peter tried to stop our Lord from going to Jerusalem, the very thing for which he came to earth. And and our Lord looked at him and and gave him that gentle rebuke. Peter, he said, uh, actually he said, uh, get behind me, Satan. What he was saying in effect was, Peter, you've become a mouthpiece for Satan in, in, in this situation. He was washing his feet, you see. Another occasion when Peter, in a great blast of egotism, said, Lord, I'll never deny you. And the Lord said, oh, no, Peter, no, Peter. When you talk like that, you're just headed for a fall. You'll deny me three times before the cock crows. He was washing his feet. It's a sort of ministry that the Lord did for three and a half years with his disciples. Now he's leaving. And so he passes on that task to the other disciples. He says, I've done it to you. Now you do it to one another. Notice how he puts it. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments... And reclined at table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher, one who instructs you, and Lord, one whom you are to obey. And you're absolutely right, because that's what I am. We're not free to second-guess our Lord or to quibble with his authority. What he says goes. Where he has been unequivocally clear, we must obey. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. For so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. This is the only place in the New Testament where our Lord himself says that he is an example to us. And the example of it, he said, is one of washing feet. We said, what is this, another rite? Another sacrament? Well, there certainly would be nothing wrong with our doing this sort of thing. Many believers do. Many denominations do. Mennonites, others. They actually go through the ritual. And that would be all right. It, ought, it would be for us, I think, a very uh, strong reminder of the necessity of, of our taking on this task for one another. But the more important issue is the reality that stands behind the ritual. The reality is that we ought to be helping one another cleanse our lives from daily defilement. Now, what does that look like? Well, 
there is this matter of private confession. We can confess our own sins. It may mean that we sit at our brother or our sister's feet and we listen to their confession. Not that we have the power to forgive. Only God can forgive. But we can assure others of God's forgiveness and his resources to change us. There's a little, uh, uh, not very often applied verse in James. We sometimes forget this statement. James says uh, in, in chapter 5, verse 16, Confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. We're afraid of that sort of confession, but it is a good thing to do. It is a biblical thing to do. And sometimes it's the only way we can be assuaged from guilt that cannot, you know, we can't, from which we cannot be delivered by merely private confession. Sometimes hearing a brother or sister say, on the authority of Jesus' words, you are forgiven comes through to us in a way that uh, we would not other, otherwise hear. So that's one way we can wash one another's feet. But there's another way. We can initiate the action. And here's where all of us begin to have trouble. We can go to a brother or sister who is sinning. Now, I, I'm not talking about going to someone who annoys us. Someone who bugs us. I'm talking about someone who is guilty of of sin. Something that is clearly specified in Scripture to be sin. Malice, greed, ambition, adultery, materialism, fornication, homosexuality. Things that are specified in Scripture as sin. And we can go and we can get down on our knees... And we can humble ourselves. We can bow down before that person. And it is humiliating. And gently, lovingly, graciously, with an awareness of our own propensity towards sin, without any self-righteousness, without being censorious and and judgmental, we we can point out to them the sin that, uh, that we've observed. This is what Paul describes in Galatians 6. I don't have time to look at it this morning or to take you through it, but Paul simply says, if you see your brother or your sister overtaken in a sin, you who are spiritual, that's not some special pious class, that's anyone depending upon the Spirit, walking in reliance upon the Spirit of Christ. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Interesting word, restore. It's a word that's used in the Gospels for the disciples mending their nets. It's a word that's used in classical Greek literature for setting bones. It's an action, tender action of love. It's a, it's a reconstruction. It's a matter of putting back in order something that's out of order. So here's a life that's out of order. So we very gently, very humbly, with, with real meekness and tenderness, we try to help them get their life back together again. We don't plunge their feet into boiling water, nor do we... Stick them in cold water. You know, we, it, it, it's done in warmth and in gentleness and in love. Paul says, if you see your brother overtaken in a, in a, in a sin, you go to that person. 
and you very gently wash their feet. Considering yourself, he says, lest you do you too be tempted. That's a pregnant phrase. He means tempted and, and seduced into sin. In other words, you might be the next one who falls. The next time, you may be the one whose feet are getting washed. Always keep that in mind. Never, never feel that you've arrived or that the slope is always one way. It never is. This is not something that the clergy does for the laity. This is something we all do for one another. This is something you do for me. This is something I do for you. We do this to one another, as Jesus said. And thus, you, as Paul goes on to say in Galatians 6, you bear one another's burdens. Burdens of what? Burdens of sin. We're linked together by common sin. We're just a community of sinners. Nobody has it made. We all struggle. We all fall. We all fail. We all gossip. We lie. We cheat. We, we do these things and we need help in order to deal with our sin. If we're not dealing with it ourselves... And we need someone to come to us and objectify our sin because, the, you know, the problem of sin is that it is so cotton-picking deceitful. We can rationalize it. We can justify it. We've got all of our fudge factors and loopholes and we can overlook it and defend it. And we don't always see it and we don't see what it's doing to us and how blinded we've become. So we need a, a brother or sister to come to us and lovingly point out the defilement on our feet and cleanse our feet so we can go on walking with the Lord. It's a matter of being more fruitful and productive, life becoming more wholesome and meaningful. Now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is not something that is optional in the Christian life. This is mandated upon us. If I, then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to. To wash one another's feet. We don't have any choice. We have to do this for one another. George MacDonald says that this is the mild remedy that must be resorted to for the correction of faults before we have recourse to extreme severity. I like that. That's the first step. It's the mild remedy. But there is another step. And again, it comes from the lips of our Lord. Turn back to Matthew 18. Verse 15. <clears throat> now, we often overlook the context of this uh, statement. Our Lord is talking about the the awfulness of those who lead little ones astray. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, so forth. And he tells this uh, wonderful story of, of the wandering sheep and the shepherd who leaves the 99 and he goes and searches out that straying sheep that's the picture. Then he gives the principle in verse 15. If your brother sins, if he's one of these little ones who wanders away. See, not only, he's saying not only don't cause him to sin, but if he wanders off into lostness, if he nibbles his way off into sin, go after him like the good shepherd does. If your brother sins, go and reprove him, show him his sin. 
and summon him to repentance. You understand what he's saying? He goes after us. He's the good shepherd. So we should go after others. This is the mild, uh, the mild remedy. Verse 16, if he doesn't listen to you, take two or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Two or more go looking for that, that little lost sheep to bring it back home. To confirm the witness of the one. Not just to gang up on the person. Not just to harass them. But to, to try to reclaim them. And assure them this is something that's very serious. Something that's, that's affecting the body. Something that's affecting their body. Or will in time. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, that is, to the assembled body or to some segment of the body of Christ, then then the waywardness of this sinful person needs to be announced to the body, not in some gleeful way, but, but in mourning and in sorrow. And then the whole church goes after this person. This is not excommunication at this point. It's simply a matter of alerting the rest of the, of the body to the fact that one member is in need. So the body rushes to the aid of that individual. They call, they send notes, they invite that person out to lunch, they talk, they plead, they appeal, they try in every way to summon that person to, to repentance. And then, uh, as Jesus puts it, if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Now I asked you, how did Jesus treat tax collectors and, and publicans and, and sinners and Gentiles? He loved them, but he treated them as those that are on the outside. He didn't treat them as he would the inner circle of believers. And what, what our Lord is saying and what Paul later says is that they are excluded in the sense that we no longer fellowship with them as a believer. They are put on the outside, excluded for a time. And as Paul says, this is done, they, they are in a sense handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so the body can be, so the spirit can be saved at the day of the Lord. That's, that statement is found in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. I don't have time right now to turn there. The whole thing is intended to be redemptive, to bring that person back. Because what happens is that the protection and the defense of the church is taken away. The hedges are removed, so the person is permitted to do as they please. And and as Augustine said, sin is the punishment for sin. What happens is that our sins are intensified, and we wander off into greater and greater sin, and our lives begin to deteriorate. And our body and soul suffers terribly. Now that is not an occasion for joy or for glee. It ought to make us very sad. As McDonald said, it's a terrible thing to be bad. We should be sorry for them and not despise them. For their life will fall apart at the seams. It's the story of the prodigal all over. The father takes his hands off him. He lets him take all the resources of the father's house and spend them on himself, prostitute them in that sense. And he ends up in, in the pig pen eating what the hogs wouldn't eat, if you can imagine the horror of that for a Jew, given their antipathy toward, toward swine. And finally, when he came to the end of himself, he remembered home and 
hearth and a waiting father and he went back home and the father was waiting with open arms and he accepted him back in. Paul says, with regard to the brother who was put on the outside of the church in Corinth, and when he came back, he says, forgive him and affirm, publicly affirm your love for him, which, which I'm sure they did. Accept him back, put him back in the harness as a brother that's been redeemed. I want to share a letter from a dear friend of mine against uh, whom I had to take this action some years ago. He was um, just a wonderful guy. We, we used to travel together, minister to university students, remarkably gifted teacher. Got involved in immorality. Though he denied it, there were a number of witnesses to his sin. And it was my unhappy task to have to tell it to the church. That was at the end of a year or more of appeals and efforts to try to bring him back to Christ. Uh, Three or four years ago, I received this letter from him. Several years ago, you took public action against me in accordance with Matthew 18, 15 through 20. All the charges were true. After I became a Christian some 18 years ago, I failed to deal thoroughly with lust and covetousness. In time, I became self-deceived, proud, and arrogant. Moreover, eventually, God shouted upon the housetops that which I had desperately tried to keep hidden. God finally let me go into alcoholism and sexual immorality, both of which were worse than I experienced before my conversion. Twice I went through the horror and hell of manic depressive psychoses, as Nebuchadnezzar did, that I might learn that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I'm very fortunate to be alive. I came close to suicide and should have died in ignominy and disgrace, except for the scripture which says, Dost thou work wonders for the dead? Do the shades rise up to praise thee? Is thy steadfast love declared in the grave, or thy faithfulness in Abaddon? I am in need of your forgiveness, for I have wronged you all. It is impossible for me to retrace my footsteps and right every wrong. However, I welcome the opportunity to meet and pray with you. I'm looking and waiting for the further grace and mercy of God in this matter. What you have bound on earth was bound in heaven. And now I know that your actions were done in love for my good and that of the body. It's restored. He has now a very fruitful ministry. The guys back there threw a party for him, the likes of which I have never seen. They actually killed a fatted calf. And when he came in the door, they put a robe on him. And they hugged him, and they kissed him, as the father did the prodigal. And they welcomed, back, welcomed him back, and uh, this man is being greatly used of, of God today. The best way I know to trash one's life is to continue in sin. We're not talking here about the sin that you and I commit every day. We're talking about persistence in in sin. Please understand, we're all sinners. We're a community of sinners. And as Paul would say, I'm the chief. We have to deal with our sin. If we don't, if we go on in rebellion and resistance, and we're hard-hearted and indifferent to our sin, we defend it, justify it, and uh, we do not respond to the appeals of the rest of the body, we will find ourselves in desperate straits. And our lives will begin to deteriorate because there is an inviolable law in this universe. Sin does not 
prosper. And if we really love people, we'll try to salvage them. Now I want to tell you something. If you practice this text, you will not be well received by this world. Our society tells us, uh, live and let live, though I must say there is absolutely no life in that maxim. That principle will kill you. There's this idea, you know, I, you paddle your own canoe, and you let everybody else paddle their canoe, and, and uh, don't mess with them. Leave them alone, even, they're, even if they're in dire peril. But we can't do that. We got to save them. I have a friend here. Uh, I won't mention his name, but he is one of my fellow elders. And uh, I was uh, up on a river up north of here some years ago. And he and his family came up to spend the day with us, and he brought his canoe along. And he said, Let's uh, float the river. I said, well, to the best of my knowledge, about two or three miles downstream, there is a heap of white water and a gosh awful falls, and uh, I'm not sure that uh, we want to go down there. He said, ah. So I just flew over this uh, river a couple of weeks ago. There's a bridge down there. As long as we get out the bridge, we're okay. So I'm not the greatest of canoeists, so I got in the front, and he got in the back. And we started paddling, and we had a wonderful float for about three hours. Our wives took the cars down. They were going to pick us up at the bottom of, uh, at the bridge, as he put it. So we kept uh, moving on down this river, and the water began to get uh, a little rougher, and the river began to move a little faster and a little more choppy. And every time we'd come around a bend, I'd start looking for the bridge. And then it came to me, I had been on that stretch of water sometime previously, and there was no bridge on that river. And we came around the last bend, and the river disappeared. It just went, and I saw all the spray coming up, and I knew we were in trouble. So I said to my friend, I don't care what you're doing, but I'm paddling. Out of here. And we just made it. If we hadn't started paddling vigorously at that point. We would have gotten caught in the, in the flow and we would have gone over that falls. And when we got out, his comment was, boy, he said, I'm glad you did that. I must be on the wrong river. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, he was. Now, um, <laughs> the illustration is not perfect because I was in the canoe with him. And I suppose that to make the... Uh, the symbolism more exact, you would have to leap into your friend's canoe and rescue him. But really, that's what we're talking about. We cannot let people paddle their own canoes. We don't have that right. This is not an option. This is a matter of obedience to Christ. As he put it, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Let me leave you with the promise that with which he left the uh, apostles. Verse 17. I'm back, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm back in John now, John 13, 17. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Interesting uh, construction here. The first uh, conditional clause, if you do these things, assumes 
reality. You do now know these things, our Lord. Taught it and exemplified it. We know that it is a good thing to wash one another's feet. The second uh, uh, conditional clause, if you do them, suggests maybe yes, maybe no. So what Jesus is saying is this. You know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Now this is a difficult saying, but I have discovered that uh, whenever you run into a difficulty in Scripture, it's invariably because we do not know enough yet. We have more to learn. And here is a truth that we have to learn. The most redemptive, the most merciful, the most loving thing that we can do is to not let people paddle their own canoe. You know, back in the 60s, there was, uh, uh, what's his name, Perlman's uh, sort of misty-eyed sentiment, you do your thing and I do my thing. And, and if by chance we should meet, won't that be beautiful? You know, that sentiment will lead us all to destruction. We have to wash one another's feet. Let's pray. This is another of your hard sayings, Lord. We do not like this. No matter how we do it, we come off as intrusive and and people misunderstand We seem to be judgmental. We seem to be interfering with other people's lives. It is not the thing to do. And yet you've told us that we must do it. Help us, Lord, to take this action for one another, this mild remedy, with a great deal of tact and gentleness, kindness, Deal with our own hearts. Keep us from coming down on one another with harshness and with indifference to the hurt that always follows. Help us to be unfailingly sensitive and kind, gentle. But help us to be forthright and frontal. To deal with our own sin mercilessly and and to help others deal with theirs. We must do this because our lives depend upon it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.